good morning again, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. Would you stand? I'd like you to stand one more time as we go to the text this morning. We'll be in Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1. Before that, we, we, do, we uh, come together in the form of a prayer called the Shabbat of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way to reorient ourselves back to God, uh, recommit ourselves to God before we hear his word. So it's a simple prayer. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1, 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have letters from Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and the citadel by the temple, and for the city walls and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Transferates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before I came to Randall, I uh, worked in youth ministry for 10 years. And about this time every year, around the fall, I would get at least one senior who would write me and say, hey, can we sit down and have a talk? And I would say, absolutely, and we'd sit down. But I always knew what this was about. It was always a senior who was looking for direction as they kind of, this last year of their life, and they were thinking about colleges, they were starting to apply to colleges, and they were trying to decide kind of what college do I go to, or do I take a gap year, or do I uh, just go into the work uh, world, do I go into a profession now? And they had all these questions that were racing around that any senior has. I'm sure if you're a senior out there, these kind of questions are starting to float around in your head. But they would ask things like, what should I do? What college should I go to? Should I take a gap year? What profession should I choose? And I found that most students, when they came to me, they weren't looking for guidance as much as an answer. They wanted someone to sit across them and say, you should do this. 
They, they craved sort of that, uh, uh, that, that, that definitive direction. They, they, they were tired of all the what-ifs and what could be, and they were tired of all the possibilities, and they wanted someone like the great Oz to stand up and say, son, do this, or daughter, go do this. They, 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 you could see it in their eyes. They craved it. But of course, we know that's not often how God communicates. Now, most of us aren't seniors in high school, but we often ask the same questions. What should we do? Should I make a career change? When should I retire? Do I go back to school? Should we move? What does my family need? What is God asking of me? And I find that we too would love that definitive answer. We'd love to just have God tell us exactly what to do. You know, like in Old Testament fashion, some Old Testament fire or angel appearances or vivid dream kind of stuff. Let me ask you, whatever happened to casting lots? You know, like that sounds really great, doesn't it? Like let's get the Yahtzee boards out and let's just uh, shake them up and decide. Like that's New Testament. They were doing that in the New Testament. Why don't we do that? that? Doesn't that sound really nice? You have a big, important decision. You get some people together. You pray over the die, and let's do this thing. But we know that's not how God often works. We know that's not how God is often doing this thing. Whoa. Yeah, that's me. Are we good now? No. Okay. Well, we'll try our best. Loose connection. I feel like a lot of us get hung up at this step. We're sort of in that discernment stage, and we'll hang out there for a really long time because we feel stuck. We think we might know what God has for us, but we're not sure, and we want a little more confirmation, and again, where's the Yahtzee board? Like, let's, let's do this thing, the magic eight ball. But it feels like whenever we shake the magic egg fall, we always get the a see me later option. You remember that's like, like, come back later. You're like, no, I, I want to know now. So how do we get a direction from God? What I love about Nehemiah, and we're starting this series, we started last week this series on Nehemiah. What I'm really thankful about Nehemiah is that we have this chapter too. Because Nehemiah embarks in this epic calling. He says yes to this big thing. He's going to lead a group of people to go rebuild a city, rebuild the walls of this city. And I'm glad that Nehemiah doesn't start on their way. I'm glad that Nehemiah doesn't start with them saying, so God told them to do it, and they said yes, and here we go. But we actually get a a couple of chapters at the beginning to watch Nehemiah's discernment process study what he does, study the things that he did to help give him direction and clarity in his life. I'm thankful that we get chapter 2 because it gives us a window into his discernment. And the Bible actually gives us some insight then into the elements that go into making a decision. And as I was reading, I, I see sort of these three elements that is working together, that's kind of progressively working together with Nehemiah in order for him to make a decision and move forward in that decision. So we're going to look at those three today, but just to give you a little background, in case you weren't here last week or you just you, you need a little refresher, here's just a little bit of the background to the story of Nehemiah. In the early books of the Bible, God establishes this chosen people in Genesis and Exodus called the, the Israelites. 
And this was a chosen people established by God who were to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to show everybody in the world what God was like by living a new way, a different way, a better way. But over time, they didn't be a light to the nations. They became like the nations. They turned to foreign gods. They married foreign wives, and they adopted foreign lifestyles. Eventually, after continual opportunities to turn back, God gives them over to these nations. He says, you want to be like them? Then fine, go be like them. And so the dominant empires of the day destroy their capital city of Jerusalem and take them back with them into exile. And so Nehemiah is actually a second-generation exiler. His parents were the original exiles. He was born into this exile. He was born not in his home, not in his foreign land, not where his ancestors lie, as he says in the text. But he gets the sense that God is calling him to return to Jerusalem and help help reestablish Israel, help reestablish Jerusalem back into the type of nation that could be a light to the nations. And Nehemiah has rose uh, into a position of being the cupbearer for the king. He's in an influential position. And he feels that this is the time, this is the place. God has placed them in a specific time and place in order to make this request, in order to get the support and get the funding and get the resources to get this thing off the ground. So what does he do? I won't do that again. First thing he does is he prays. Now I know this sounds like the church answer, right? This sounds like the churchy Sunday school, what do you do when God, you're discerning God's will on your life? You pray, right? We all know it. We all have heard it. But it's really interesting to see just how integral this is woven into the first two chapters of Nehemiah. Really, the whole first chapter of Nehemiah is just a prayer. It gives us a little background, but then the rest of the chapter is just this prayer that Nehemiah gives about just his lostness in it, his discernment, his, his questioning in it. It really is helpful as I've read that prayer, just how, how much it closer resembles my prayer sometimes when I just don't know what to do. But we also find in other places uh, here in chapter 2, his ability to pray. And, and we see it oftentimes. It says, uh, really, uh, the king says, what is it you want, right? He, his face looks sad. The king notices it. He, he inquires about it. And then he asks, what is it that you want? And then the passage reads, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said, and then I told him. And actually, we see that a couple times in the passage, that this prayer life is woven into the narrative. It's almost like in chapter one, is kind of like his private time, right? We, we, tell, we, we tell people to go have private devotions and be, be there and have sort of this prayer, uh, this prayer time every day that you can be in communion with God. I think that's, that's good and right. But also what I love about chapter two is then this prayer is woven into just his everyday life. Notice the king asks him a question, then it says he prays, and then he gives the answer. 
And I doubt very much it went like this. What is it do you want? Hold on, let me go pray. And then he goes, you know, for half an hour and prays and then come back and answer. It, it feels to me like it's just a very natural part of his dialogue, his internal dialogue with himself, that he's praying all the way through as this is happening. And I think this is an important distinction between a prayer time and a prayer life. A prayer time is when you set aside a time that's, it's like kind of your, the, the prayer closet kind of concept, right? You go and you dedicate a time where you're not distracted and you get away and you have time. That's very good and that's not wrong. But if that's all it is, well, then we've dedicated our half an hour or 15 minutes or five minutes to God every day. And then most of the day is just us still trying to kind of work out of our own desires, work out of our own strength, work out of our own passion. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I don't often do well when I'm on my own. Versus a prayer life that says prayer is something that just kind of happens throughout the day. And it doesn't have to be elaborate, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, super complicated, but just quick prayers, quick recognitions, pr uh, quick uh, 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 kind of step backs mentally to say, God, what do you want to do in this? Where are you? How, help me here. Oh, I, I feel a stress point coming on. What's going on? And so God often wants us to be praying in this way. This is when Paul talks about pray continuously. It's like, well, I can't. I've got a job, right? Like, I've got kids and commitments and things like that. How do I pray continuously? Well, it's in this prayer life. We're right in the middle of a conversation, even. The king asks, what do you need? And it says he prays, and he answers. Just this natural conversation that's going. You see, we live in a world that values the natural. It's a world of cause and effect and observable, measurable calculations but kingdom people know that there is a supernatural reality all around us. And if we were to only slow down and quiet ourselves and lean in, the Holy Spirit would speak in whispers and nudges and coincidences and sometimes even miracles. My parents are here today. Um, they're sitting in the back because they're going to sneak out at the end to go to the Bills game, so they only get like half credit for being here today. It's kind of like a half credit point. Um, thing like that. But they had just come back from a two-month sabbatical. My dad's a pastor, and so his time was up, and so he took a, a sabbatical, and they went away for two months, and they visited every place they had ever lived or was ever significant to them. So they literally went across the country uh, in a car and visited the place. My, mom, my mother was born in Australia. Her, dad, her father was a missionary, and so they actually even flew to Australia to see her house and see the places they went. And so they were telling about us last night. We were asking, how did it go and what, the thing, what was going on? And they said that one of the themes of their trip was this idea of intentionality, of actually slowing down and asking God to surprise them. They said every morning they would pray together, which is something they didn't do a lot, but like came together and prayed and said, God, today surprise us and do something we're not expecting at all. And they said it was amazing to see the ways in which God answered that prayer. That when they prayed this prayer, it was, it was almost like an antenna went up. And all of a sudden they were more aware they were more intentional. They were, they were able to see the supernatural bubbling to the surface of our natural world. And God surprised them in all sorts of ways. 
they tapped into the supernatural and God worked in some pretty cool ways. I think often our preference for the natural world makes us susceptible to a certain prayer I call the retroactive prayer. Have you ever prayed the retroactive prayer? The retroactive prayer is when you do something, you didn't really pray about it, you just thought it was a good idea, you did it, and then you retroactively pray that God blesses it? Anyone ever prayed that prayer? No, I'm the only non-spiritual one in the room? Awesome. Thank you all. Yeah, it's, it's the prayer in which you, you feel like you should do something, but you really haven't tapped into that supernatural. You haven't really let the Holy Spirit guide that process. And that, again, it doesn't have to necessarily be a long process, right? Sometimes it's, it's quick. Sometimes it's, it's, it's in the moment. But I've made decisions before where I recognize later on, you know what? I didn't really pray about that. And then it's like, oh, Lord, remember that? Like, could you, like, pretend that I'm praying this prayer, like, a week ago and not right now and just kind of let it cover over later? But I think when we invite God in, when we realize that he is already at work all around us and we are simply just discerning where he might have us join in, what that does is that it takes us the pressure off to succeed. It takes the pressure. If I'm in control, if I'm the one making the decision, well, the outcome is based on my skill, my ability to discern well, whatever gifts I have. If it's God's idea and we're being invited into it, then we're freed up to not have to feel like this needs to succeed or not succeed based on our standards. And so we pray. When we were buying a house, I thought about borrowing that much amount of money, and it made me weak in the knees. And I remember this was one of my retroactive prayers, where I went, oh my goodness, I'm about to buy a house, and I didn't pray about it. Or I prayed like those like little prayers, like, God, if it's your will, like, let it work. Amen. You know, and, and not really inviting God into the process of that. And I remember Molly's dad uh, saying, uh, well, you know, Brian, at the end of the day, if, if you've got to believe that God's will is in it. And I had told him that I hadn't really invited God into the whole process. And I said, well, uh, maybe it's time for a retroactive prayer. But we invite God into this discernment process. This, this becomes less of a, a churchy, a Sunday school answer, and it becomes a rhythm of life, of what we do. So we pray. Second thing we do, and I'm scared to walk over to that board, so we'll see how this goes. But the second thing that Nehemiah does after he prays is that he actually plans. He plans it. The king asks him, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He actually planned, he actually used his brain, he actually used his willpower in order to set a course of time, in order to set a a plan of action. Notice he even asked the king for letters so he can get materials. He asks uh, for safety, and so the king sends him a a, a posse, a, 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 a cavalry, in order to protect them while they're there. He's thinking through the details of this plan. So if one extreme is relying too much on the natural, the other extreme is relying too much on the supernatural. 
Now, this might sound weird for a pastor to say, like, don't rely too much on the supernatural. Like, get your, hold, your, hold your tomatoes. Just wait a second. Let me explain. Sometimes God does ask us to do things in the supernatural. And it doesn't make sense in the natural. However, I don't believe this should be our default position. It is a false spirituality to depend on our heart at the avoidance of our head. It's a false spirituality to say, I'm just going to do this because I feel God is uh, pl- uh, letting me do that. And we avoid all the ways in which God might be guiding us through the natural consequences and the natural barriers that come up. Now, again, let me be clear. I believe that sometimes God calls us to do something supernatural that makes no sense whatsoever rationally, and you should do it. If you feel that strong desire that God says, you do this no matter what the cost and no matter what, how, how crazy this might seem, and we have tons of Bible stories that talk about this, sometimes God actually does allow us and guide us through the natural, through using our head, using our brains, using our rationalization to be able to make a plan so that we know what we're doing, so that we're organized, so that we, we understand the costs and what we need and resources and things like that. Jesus actually uses an example of this. He tells a parable about a king and a builder. One's building a tower, and he doesn't count the cost of what it's going to take, how much it's going to cost to build a tower. And so he gets halfway done, runs out of money, and he can't finish it. And Jesus says, what a foolish builder. He didn't count the cost. He tells a a story about a king who wants to go to war with a a foreign nation, but he doesn't send spies out to know how big the king's other side's army is. And if it's so much bigger than theirs, and you know you're not going to win, you send articles of peace Because you know you won't win. You haven't counted the cost, foolish king, if you send out your armies without knowing who you're fighting. Sometimes God asks us into the supernatural, but God's guidance often comes through this. And this is actually paradoxical. It's paradoxical how God's plans and our choices mysteriously work together. I want to show you two passages of Scripture from Proverbs that seem like they're counterdicting each other. The first one, Proverbs 21.5, it says this, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is impulsive comes only to poverty. Okay, so that makes sense. That, that, would go, that, would, that would go for the make plans, be diligent, don't be kind of willy-nilly here. The plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance. Don't be impulsive when you're making decisions. But earlier in Proverbs, it says this in 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Wait a minute. I, so... The plans of the diligent who aren't just being willy-nilly are blessed, but at the end of the day, it's all God's decision anyway. How does that work? That seems paradoxical. That seems like, well, which one is it? Should I plan or should God, is, is everything up to God anyway? Yes. The answer is yes. There is a mysterious way in which God asks us to be diligent, asks us to work hard, asks us to plan, asks us not to be be strategic. And at the same time, God is guiding it and nurturing it and pushing it along at his time and pace. 
so that somehow our plans, our natural world, and his supernatural world come together. This is actually the very uh, image of Jesus incarnate. The idea that the natural and the supernatural slam into each other in the image of Jesus. That somehow the natural break into our world and the two work together in this mysterious, beautiful, crazy, absurd way in Jesus that we can't quite put our finger on. So we are led by the supernatural while we live in the natural, and so we plan, we reason, we rationalize, we ask advice from wise people. We're not irresponsible. We join God in the mysterious relationship of the natural and the supernatural. We pray, and then we plan, and then finally, We proceed. We do it. We do it. We see with Nehemiah that he is very much afraid. This is not an easy ask. He's very much afraid, but he does it. If we pray and we see green lights, and we plan and we see green lights, the final step is to proceed. Because what Nehemiah is doing is actually really dangerous. Being in the presence of the king was serious business. You had to be summoned to even be in the same room as him. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer, which guarded the king's cup against poison. And so this naturally had this close relationship between the two. But to make an unsolicited request of the king was a punishable... I remember if you were here for our, um, for our, our series in Joseph. Right, Joseph is in prison, and we find the king's cupbearer is in prison too because he had made a mistake. He had done something. He had asked, he had requested something, or he spilled the wine. I don't know. I don't, we don't know what he did, but he did something wrong, and he found himself in prison. And this is the fate very well that Nehemiah, or worse, could happen to him. One wrong move in the king's sight, and that was it. You see, bravery isn't the absence of fear. It's the action in the midst of fear. In fact, without fear, there is no bravery. You can't be brave doing something you're not scared of, right? Some of you are terrified of coming up here and speaking, right? And so you coming up here would be super brave. I'm only getting over being deathly afraid every time I come up here. So maybe, uh, maybe it's a little less. But we get the picture. Fear is a key ingredient in bravery, and a lot of times when God calls us to something, it's not easy. And there's a fear involved. And we're called to move. God's story is filled of people who acted despite physical, social, and economic risks. Abraham moved to a land unknown. The Israelites crossed the Jordan. Joshua led Israel into battle. Rahab hid spies. Esther, against protocol again, goes before the king to plead for the Jews. Paul and Peter get mocked, beaten, and eventually killed for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Story after story, they said yes, and they did it. There's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt that my father actually introduced me to that has stayed with me for years, and it comes from a speech, the speech Citizens in the Republic in 1910 at a time of great turmoil in the world. 
And as they were figuring what to do, he said this. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows great enthusiasms and great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So his place will never be with the cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. At some point, we have to enter the arena. We have to get our faces marred with dust and sweat and blood. We have to strive valiantly, and we have to spend ourselves for a worthy cause. We have to do it. And so we see these three things that Nehemiah is doing. He's praying, he's planning, and finally he's proceeding. What I find is that these three things actually work together in our decision-making. That there's actually, you you need all three in order to really be able to uh, move forward, to really be able to not feel stuck in a decision. Because when you take any one of these three away, you're you're left uh, empty, you're left stuck, or or you're going to move in a direction that's not where God wants you to. Let's take a look at each of those for a second. When you're willing to plan and you're willing to proceed, but you're not willing to pray, you're dangerously motivated. You're dangerously motivated. You're willing to plan stuff, you're willing to do stuff, but you're not guided by the Holy Spirit. You're not guided by the Spirit of Christ. And so you could be doing lots of different things and at at best, a lot of them are going to be fruitless and at worst, a lot of them are going to be dangerous. There are a lot of people that have been hurt by dangerously motivated leaders and dangerously motivated people who make all the plans and do all the stuff but aren't being led by God. And this is what happens when we take prayer out of the equation. If we pray and we plan, but we don't proceed, we're timidly motivated. We're timidly motivated. We're willing to pray and hear what God has for us. We're willing to make the plans, but we won't actually do it. We won't step up to the plate. We'll sit in our pew, we'll sit in our seat, and we'll say, I just need a little more confirmation. I just need a little more time to plan. I need to dot every I and every T, and we're not willing to actually say yes. We're completely equipped. We've made our plans We've been, we've been in, the, in the presence of the Lord. We know that this is the right thing. God has given us direction in this, but we're not willing to say yes. We're not willing to pull the trigger. And so we're timidly motivated. Timidly motivated. Finally, if we're willing to pray, 
and we're willing to proceed, but we're not willing to plan, or we're not able to plan, or for whatever reason, we, we short-circuit this type of process. We're aimlessly... Oh, here we go. We're aimlessly passionate. We're aimlessly passionate. We've got all sorts of great ideas, right? We've got, we've got, we, these are the visionaries amongst us. And as someone who is very good at planning, these type of people annoy me a lot. These are the people that, we've got this great idea! And then they're like, so make it happen. Right? They've got all the passion in the world. They've got all the ideas of the world. And they throw it on other people to actually make it happen. I've heard people say before, well, well, I'm sort of a vision person. I'm not really the doing person. And I, as a doing person, I'm like, yeah, ah, you. <laughs> we see that all three of these work together. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. We plan, we set times. How long is this going to be? How much money will this cost? What's the time commitment here? These are good questions. These are things we need to ask. And then we proceed. Let me ask you, which one do you struggle with? I find that most of us struggle with at least one. Where are you? Are you, are you dangerously motivated at times? Are you aimlessly passionate? Or are you timidly equipped? You see, when God's calling us to do something, when God has a vision, gives us a vision and says, go, we look to Nehemiah. We look at the things that he did in order to say yes to what God has for us. Maybe God has put something in your bones, an idea, a passion, a longing, a direction. It might be a new sense or something that has been nagging you for a long time. And it doesn't have to be fantastical. Sometimes the most faithful actions are the seemingly ordinary, consistent acts of faith over a long period of time. Sometimes we look at Nehemiah, we're like, well, if God doesn't call me to something like that, then he's not, he's not asking me to do anything. That's not true. Sometimes the most faithful thing that you can do is the seemingly ordinary over a long period of time. Small steps of faithfulness for a long time time. But whatever it is, it doesn't have to succeed the way you would hope for it, for it to be the right choice. Because there will be an active opposition to whatever you do. And we see that the very last verse here. We see the first introduction to Nehemiah's opposition. That there are men who do not want to see the welfare of Israel or, Ju or Jerusalem. And so it doesn't have to succeed or it doesn't have to look the way it's, you think it's going to look for it to be the way God has for it. I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, flip over to the very last verse of Nehemiah. And if you're in the band, uh, I'd invite you up at this time. Again, when we look at Nehemiah, we think big epic story, big epic calling. This might be like, wow, he must be, he must just be rocking it here. And we find at the end of the narrative, at the end of the story, after all the planning, after all the praying, after all the proceeding that he does, 
he's wind up frustrated at the end. In the last chapter of Nehemiah's story, you find that there's no resolution. He is completely frustrated with the people for continuing to break God's law. In fact, a little later in the story, as they were building the temple, uh, uh, many of the older priests, when they saw the temple finished, openly wept because it was not as nice as the former temple. How's that for a ribbon-cutting ceremony, right? But in the end, in the very last verse of Nehemiah, he, his prayer is simply this, remember me, O God, for good. And that's how it ends. It doesn't end with a big crescendo. It doesn't end with a big celebration. They don't, don't all uh, stand at the wall and hold hands and sing kumbaya and isn't this wonderful. Nehemiah is frustrated. Nehemiah is lonely. Later on, his work is, is going to be judged against other people's work. And you think, did Nehemiah get it wrong? Did Nehemiah not hear well? Should he have prayed more? Should he have planned more? Maybe he shouldn't have proceeded at all. And we know, no, that's not it. Nehemiah just simply prayed, God, remember me for good. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is whatever God has cooked up inside of you, whatever God has building and growing in you, whether it's big or whether it's small, Maybe it's just a little conversation that you're supposed to have with a coworker this week or a neighbor. Maybe it's inviting that friend over for dinner for the first time and being intentional about getting to know someone. Maybe it is a ministry. Maybe it is something that God's calling to. Maybe it's joining with one of our partners. Maybe it's going on a missions trip. Whatever it is, pray and plan and then proceed. And then however it goes, whether the trip is the most spiritually high moment of your life or it rains the whole week, whether the conversation goes wonderful and you're baptizing people in the sink at your, at your work, or it's super awkward and doesn't go anywhere, whether you invite the family over and it's just a train wreck or it goes beautifully, in the end, you can say, God, remember us for good. Because we prayed, we planned, and we went, and when we proceeded, we said yes. I know Pastor Milo last week, he, he, he challenged us to say, what is it for you? We're going on a trip with Nehemiah. What is it with you? Where can we learn from Nehemiah? Where can we say yes to God as Nehemiah said yes? I'm so thankful for chapter 2 that helps give us a rhythm of how to discern that, to say yes, and to move forward and go. And in the end, may all of our prayer, may this prayer of this church, may the prayers for you individually be, in the end, God, remember us for good. Whether it succeeds or fails, whether it's fruitful or not, based on our standards, God, just remember me for good. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we get to be part of your story. We thank you that you invite us into callings. We thank you that you invite us into this grand narrative you're telling. 
And so, Lord, as we hear, as we listen, as we uh, turn our ear to the supernatural and listen and, and, and be attentional and be aware, may we hear you well. And God, help us to put the plans in place. Help us to use the brain that we've been given to understand the risks, to know the resources we need, to know the cost and count the cost. And then, Lord, give us the courage to say yes. And Lord, now as we take our offering, as we invite the, uh, the attendance forward, Lord, as we take our offering, may this just be in a uh, symbolic way our first step of saying yes, of giving back, of saying, God, all that we are is yours and we can do nothing without you. And so we give as a way to say, Lord, you own it all. But we get to partner with you in it in that mysterious way, Lord, that our plans and your plans mix together. So, God, help us to hear well. Help us to say yes, and then, Lord, remember us for good. In your name I pray.